Good. Well, we're into Psalm 8 today, as you've just heard, and Psalm 8 is another Psalm of David. Now, David didn't write all the Psalms. We just seem to have uh, been looking at a lot of the Psalms that he wrote. He wrote about 73 of the Psalms, and there's maybe two that he might have written, but we're not sure. But as we know, David is an extraordinary person. He's, he's a man after God's own heart. But as we saw uh, last week, being extraordinary didn't mean, didn't mean he was flawless, didn't mean he was without sin. For all his greatness, David was uh, just as vulnerable, just as uh, prone to, to failure as you and I. He failed as a father. He failed as a husband. He, he failed as a king. He was just as prone... Uh, to weakness of integrity, just as prone to the insecurity of self as we might be, to allow, and then to allowing sin to come along and to capitalize on all these areas and cause all kinds of devastation in his life, causing him to live outside of the design that God had for his life. But we also learnt that while David is just like you and I, he also had one defining conviction a core belief that enabled him not to be crushed by sin and its consequences, not to be overwhelmed by loneliness or insecurity. And that one core conviction that, that, that kind of motivated and drove David's life was that God loved him, that God was ultimately for him, and that he could trust God to be true to his character and to treat him with what's called hesed. Hebrew word, it means with mercy, with the promised loyalty of, of God's steadfast, loving kindness. And David didn't just know about the hesed of God in, in theoretical senses, in, or, or in, in intellectual senses, merely in these things, even speculative ways. David knew God personally, in personal ways. As the psalm opens and closes, God is the majestic, transcendent, universally powerful God, and he is also the God who makes himself known, who seeks to connect that majesty into your life so that uh, it might be the defining conviction that shapes your life and, and holds you in place. God who is both King, Lord with the capital letters, Yahweh, and, of the universe, and God who is our Master, our Lord uh, of our lives in particular and special ways. In Psalm 8, we find David, <coughs> David answering the question that every single person asks at, at some point in their life. If, if not, kind of, some of us might even ask it on a regular basis, probably. But it's this How, how am I ultimately known? How am I significant? Why am I valuable? How is my worth defined? On what basis do I have dignity? And I think every commentator of every age, every preacher, says something like, you know, we live in a, in a time like no other where people are searching for meaning more than ever, uh, to find a place, to find a cause, to find an expression that gives them meaning. Meaning beyond themselves. I think that's because in every uh, development in every uh, expression of culture, there is one irreducible issue that persists. And it's our failure to understand God. This causes our insecurities. It makes us question our place in the universe. All our problems, all our insecurities, all our, all our vulnerability, all stem from not knowing God as he has made himself known to us. 
There are a few ways to think about God, which is what David's doing here. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has turned those thoughts into a psalm that helps us think rightly about God. The predominant way of thinking, or at least here now in our culture in the West, for the past couple of decades, has been the rise of secularism, that there is no God, particularly one like the one described in the Bible. All there is is matter. The universe and our place in it is is just an accident. There's no God behind it. So here's what you know. So you absolutely know that the universe is indifferent toward you. Not even that it's indifferent. It just doesn't care because it's impersonal. It can't care. So your existence is meaningless, totally without a point or a purpose. The highest meaning that you get from life is your own self-expression, your own self-defining authority, your own interpretation of life and its circumstances. There's nothing else to go by. Bertrand Russell, the OG preacher of secularism and authority of science alone to be able to define things says this man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving they just had no goal his origins his hopes his loves his beliefs are but an outcome of accidental coalition of atoms All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, inspiration, brightness of human genius are destined to the extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Isn't that encouraging? Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only within the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now that we know there is no God, Now that we finally know we we are alone in the universe, you live in a blind, impersonal universe, and your life will be like it never happened. Your life is ultimately insignificant. Now, finally, you can build your life. I feel inspired. Don't stress too much whether you're a doctor who cures cancer or you're a molesting monster who plays on children. It really means nothing. You are just dancing, if you like, as... Richard Dawkins says, dancing to your DNA, the atoms and the chemicals determine all that there is. And no, there's nothing more to it. There's just nothing more to it. And listen, if you're a secularist, I I don't care how much feel-good humanism you want to pour into secularism, it ultimately leaves you alone. It is ultimately meaningless. The other way of thinking is that there is something behind this matter, something behind it, a God who is responsible for all these atoms, all these chemicals, all these collations of things and and built into things. That's the line of thinking that David has, that creation itself manifests and makes self-evident the existence of God. The universe is not accidental, but it's the deliberate artistry of God through which he makes known his majesty and his glory. The question behind the question is, does the powerful, majestic God of all that there is actually care about me? Or is he indifferent? How does this frighteningly great God view me? I mean, you can believe in God and still wonder if he cares for you. 
at least with secularism, there's no doubt. You're not cared for. You're not important on the grand scale. But the knowledge of God invites another question. How does this God behind the universe think about us? This is the question that warms David's heart like no other. The psalm begins with David's rejection, if you like, of secularism, that there is no God. Indeed, David rejects just about every other worldview going around. He, he rejects pantheism, that, that God is in everything, or polytheism, that there, that there are many, many gods. David says there is one God, and he conveys this by the use of the word Yahweh, which is always translated in your Bibles. If you've got your Bible open there, you'll see Lord written in all caps tells us that this God is not mysterious, but is the God who has made himself known as the sole living God. In Exodus 3, we, we, we first discover this. This is the personal name that God gives himself, and it conveys that he is the absolute existing one who did not come into being, rather the one who simply is, who does not go out of being. He never changes in his nature because he is absolute and perfect. There's no need for him to change. He can't change. He depends on nothing for his being. However, everything else depends on him for its being. God alone goes by this name that we read there in Exodus 3. I am who I am. I simply am. And, and they came to write that down as Yahweh. God is not just transcendent power. But he is also a personal God. So David says, Yahweh, this, this great being, is not just a transcendent God, but is our Lord, written capital L-O-R-D. That is, God expects that we will be personally, that he, sorry, will be personally involved in our lives, that he will be our Lord. Now, just a side note, his involvement is not because you kind of go, oh, I'll invite him in and he can help me out with a few things. You know, it wouldn't be handy to have a kind of a God like this in my life, have him at my disposal. You don't ask this kind of God to be your assistant. You don't ask this kind of God just merely to be your consultant. No, the relationship that this God has with you is one of king. He is our Lord. This God rules my life. His knowledge, wisdom, understanding, his character are to be trusted, to instruct and guide me. And that's how the second use of this word is. This word Lord. He's our master, our, our, our governor, our ruler. This is a source of profound confidence. The one who has gone public with with nature, with the nature of his glory through creation, seen throughout all the earth, seen throughout all the heavens, is also the one who will rule and sustain your life with that very same power and glory. In secularism, you're on your own. In pantheism, you're just another part of an impersonal universe. In polytheism, which was the dominant kind of counter-narrative of the day, you're just always trying to please God, work out what he's at, uh, impress him, some particular deity for something or other. Indeed, all other ancient accounts of creation of the world, of how people uh, came about, say that they came about through some cosmic struggle, some their violent forces at, at, at work, wars, blood, guts, death, destruction. That's how creation came about. That's how we came into being, not Yahweh. Creation for him is a passion. An overflow of love with his fingers, 
just simply for the delight of doing it, for the love of doing it. If you read the Genesis account, which part of this psalm mimics there through verses seven and seven, 6, 7 and 8, God is pictured in Genesis as having a conversation, freely deciding to share himself with creation and then place his image on us. Paul says of this, you are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. The word workmanship here means poem. You are the God is creatively at work in you. Creation is an overflow, a public display of the loving majesty of God who hasn't left you alone in the world, who hasn't left you just to kind of hope that he's listening, but stands with you as Lord, wise and powerful counselor in your life. In verses 2, we have one of the uh, more difficult verses in the Bible uh, to understand because of its ambiguity. The ambiguity around how it is that babies and the infants establish strength because of God's foes, you know, stealing the enemy, stealing the avenger. Lots of theories abound. But one thing is certain about this verse compared to the ones before it is there's a stark contrast here. David's declaration of God as loving, creating king of the universe and of his life is held in contrast in this verse. While David rightly identifies creation as the glory of God, as something that should lead to the praise of God, there are many people who see God merely as a part of creation, of one of many options, or stronger still, that God is unnecessary, that he's not good, not to be trusted, that people are actually the highest authority. This is to be an enemy of God, to be in opposition to his truth. They might not come out and say that they are God's enemies, but they do it by the fact that they do not have God as their king. They don't say, oh Lord, our Lord. No, they boast in their wisdom of their culture, whatever that may be, secularism, new age, pantheism, the the inclusiveness of polytheism, whatever they pin their worldview on. It stands against God. It stands against God's revelation that he alone is the sole good creator and sustainer of all things. Humanity stands in defiance of God when it does this. Humanity, therefore, is God's foe, his enemy. Frightening position to be in, really. But it's how God deals with the defiance of humanity that's extraordinary. God will not use overwhelming power, might and majesty that are on display in creation to still his enemies. But rather, he will achieve this through weakness, through vulnerability. The picture of God's response towards his enemies here is one of, one of restrained power. One of approachable weakness, not fury and fire, but softness and tenderness. Infants and babies are just simply not that threatening. Unless you're like sleep deprived or something, or they're loaded, they're nappy up, then they're kind of next level and they're a little threatening. But by and large, you know, infants and babies represent approachableness, you know, weakness, vulnerability. This is how God has promised to come toward his enemies. And the presence, another play on the, on the verse here, the presence of children, generation after generation, the babbling of children, also speaks to the ongoing security of humanity. Despite the fact that they are enemies of God, they continue to keep coming. 
Indeed, this psalm pictures humanity's eventual restoration, not its annihilation, not its extinction that's so popular in modern narrative. Like the world's going to... What's the virus that's going around at the moment? We're all doomed. That's not what this psalm's painting. God is in control, guiding and directing human history. The rest of the psalm, in the rest of the psalm, David returns to the subject of God's creation or his creation of the heavens and the relationship that there is between the creator and creation and, and humanity. You know, the night skies that are spoken about here, night skies are one of the most awe-inspiring things to take in. It's one of the depressing things about living in Melbourne. Here in Melbourne, we kind of miss out. But if you, but if you get out of the city, if you get away out into the country, and by the country I don't mean Mornington, I mean really out in the country, the night sky has an amazing capacity to awe and wonder you. But it also has amazing capacity to make you feel small. You can search the sky for hours and hours and not run out of things to be amazed at. It's one of the things I love about going uh, up to Hilston and camping up there. Uh, You can just stare at the sky forever. It's incredible. Scientists tell us that there are about, now depending on which scientist you listen to, anywhere between 100, think about this, anywhere between 100 and 400 billion. What's a couple of hundred billion things between each other? Stars in our galaxy This photo here is taken by the Hubble Space Telescope in something called ultra-deep field. It's kind of like a setting on your GoPro, I don't know, but it's it's what they've taken the the photo with. It was taken in 2014, and it's a a piece of... It's a a snapshot of the universe in which almost every one of those points of light there in this image represents a galaxy. And each one of those galaxies has about 100 billion stars in it, like our sun. Now, if that doesn't make you feel small, recent speculation suggests that even our entire universe, which may be just one member of a huge uh, ensemble of universes, a multiverse, you see, Marvel are onto something, consisting of some 10 to the 500, and that's a 1 followed by 500 zeros, universes, still in my heading. That's how big things are, potentially. Dr. Mario Levino, he's an internationally renowned astrophysicist. Why not? He wrote an article in HuffPost, that incredibly credentialed thing, entitled Our Place in the Cosmos. Now, this guy's no player. He's a genuine astrophysicist. He said, when looking at this, when considering this, taking all of this on face value, taking these facts on face value may seem depressing for our sense of importance. We really are tiny. We really are insignificant. We really are kind of small in the universe. And his attempts to improve our sense of self-importance did not warm my heart. David, on the other hand, he, mar- he, he marvels at our place in the cosmos. The heavens, the multiverse consisting of, you know, these 10 to the 500 stars are merely the work of God's fingers. So as big as this picture is, it is small in comparison to God. They are not there due to some violent, chaotic singularity that randomly blew out everything into place, but rather God just sets them in place 
They are the artistry of his hand. Names each one of them. There's Bruce. There's Doug. Whatever. Over and over again, God, an expression of the intimacy of him with creation. The, the picture of his creative heart. Over and over again, David says, your, you, your fingers set the stars and the moon in place. You did this, you do that. All through verses 3 and 16, it's God who is intimately involved. The psalmist might feel small, but creation is small against God. Creation is epic, but God is its effortless artist who simply brings things to life or or forges and forms the forms of the universe. And David, when when all this kind of sits in his head, he feels fleetingly small in relationship. And he writes there in verse 4 a couple of phrases that emphasize the weakness, the frailty of humanity. He says, what is man? Enosh. Weak man, man prone to weakness, man prone to vulnerability, man prone to sin. The son of man, Adamah, the son of earth, earthborn, not self-sustaining, not eternal, needy. But the feeling is fleeting. The feeling is fleeting. As David reminds himself, he warms his heart with the knowledge that in all of this, in all of this, God is mindful of him, of me, of you. That he cares for him, that he cares for me, that he cares for you. In all of this, you are singled out. That in all of this, humanity holds a particular interest of God. And that he moves toward humanity, he moves towards me, you personally, relationally. This God of indescribable power harnesses all of it, all of that creative power in the care and the preservation of his most precious part of creation, humanity. In verses 5 to 8, David follows the same narrative of creation, calls to mind the creation narrative. That in all things, uh, God made creation. He made them in subjugation to humanity and that humanity had a responsibility to to rule and to tend and to look after it appropriately here in verse 5 david says humanity is not just another living creature but rather you know created in its kind or whatever but rather humanity is created in the likeness of god and he uses the language crowned with glory and honor the kind of language that's normally reserved for God. It's impossible to avoid the allusions to the Genesis account of creation due to the the language that David uses in this psalm. When God made humanity, he put his own image on us. We are created a little lower than God. It reads here, you might have a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels. The Hebrew word there is Elohim, and it means God. But the translators kind of flinched and got a little concerned and translated it lightly, if you like. We are crowned with glory and honor. Humanity, far from being insignificant, is uh, innately, immensely valuable. When we understand that God who created all this crazy artistry of the cosmos, when he decided that he was really going to pour his love and his passion and his heart out, he made you and I as the centerpiece of how his glory would be displayed in the universe. It's what makes our rebellion so abhorrent. It's what makes being an enemy of God 
so repulsive. It's why when we steal God's glory for ourselves or, or we place it somewhere else, we are considered to be enemies of God. However, when we come to acknowledge, when we encounter the majesty of God, His mindfulness and His care of us, we, 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 don't, we no longer need to grasp dignity, search for our own glory. We don't need to achieve some level of merit or value. We simply marvel, as David does, that we are innately, immensely dignified. David is not confused when he asks this question, what is man? He is amazed. Do you know, this is the end of things like racism. It's the end of sexism. It's the end of elitism, classism. All these isms that sin gave birth to are renounced when we see how God views humanity. Whether you're a genius, you're in cancer, whether you, you suffer from some kind of mental handicap, whether you, whether you have dyslexia in these days where you can't even you know, spell your kids' own names properly. Whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're yellow, green, you are in the image of God. Glory and honor, infinite worth and value. What are you doing here? You're here to enjoy that. You're here to enjoy God, His care of you, moving in the, in the world with His wise lordship in your life, prescribing how you live, prescribing how you see yourself. This is why we don't get to kill unborn babies. This is why you can't abuse your spouse. This is why you can't belittle your kids or despise a race of people. God, in his great expression of artistic power and majesty, has placed his image on each one of them, crowned them individually with glory and honor, and said they're mine to care for and to know. They're mine to restore back into relationship with me. This word care in verse 3 is, is, is the activity of God's mindfulness. It conveys not passiveness, but it conveys initiation, intentionality. It means, it actually, this care is that he would come and visit us, that he would come and make himself known, reveal us. Not care from afar, but care that comes near, that involves itself in your life. David has experienced the nearness of God in his life through the work of his spirit. That's why he can say, you care for me. Without doubt, if you really want to show you care for someone, that, that your mindfulness is just not mere sentiment, you, you share life with them in such a way that you take on their experience. You become familiar with their struggles, their doubts, their insecurities. You share in their joys and their triumphs. That's what Paul instructs us to be as a church. You bear with one another's burdens. Share. We're brothers and sisters, yeah? The New Testament book of Hebrews is a book that's woven together by the Psalms. But right out of the gate, the author of Hebrews sets about explaining who Jesus is. He says there in chapter 2, verse 9, after quoting Psalm 8, verses 4 to 5, he says this, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God we might taste that he might taste death for everyone. In the person of Jesus, God shows up. 
he, he calms and visits. He cares for us. God shows up in restrained power as a baby, vulnerable, weak, approachable. And as John's gospel tells us, this Jesus who now arrives as one of us is the same one who shared eternity with God, who made the universe and all that there is, and he now dwells with us. To visit us in love, to share our burdens, and as the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, to identify with us. God in his mindfulness of us shares our experience of life as the person of Jesus. Jesus himself would quote Psalm 8 in Matthew 21 to validate the testimony of the weak, the marginalized, the broken, to validate the testimony of sinners, that he was God, that Jesus was God here amongst us, visiting us, caring for us, and restoring our dignity by undoing the effects of sin in our lives. All the power that made the universe now at work to heal and restore the lives that sin has torn apart. That treating God like an enemy has led to. And Jesus' mindfulness of our plight, the reason he came to visit ultimately led him to a cross where he would share our experience of sin, but not through participating in it, but by substituting himself in our place that he would bear the wrath of God towards sin. His life, which, in which he never once acted like an enemy to God, but always saw God as God the Father as Lord, as, as, as loving God, wise and good. His life in which he was the perfect son of man, vulnerable but divine, became the place of God's vengeance towards sin and love and care for humanity. It's where they collided. It's where they met. The cross is where God's weakness powerfully steals and restores enemies so that their souls don't build their life in unyielding despair, but in the mindfulness and care of God who created the universe, that he would come and he would die for them so that they might enjoy him forever. While the cross was how God, uh, in making himself weak, was able to deal with sin, it's the resurrection where the life-creating power of God is applied to us in Jesus, whose perfect life, not corrupted by sin, not, not corrupted by viewing God as an enemy, could not be uncreated by death. No sin in him. No, no animosity towards God. Nothing that death could grab hold of and then begin to unravel him and uncreate him like it's done with absolutely everything else in the world. And so death cannot hold Jesus. That's what, that, that's what it means. It, it has no authority over him. And so he rises from the, the, the grave to display and make known his power over death. And Paul writes in Romans 6 that now this power, this resurrection life power is applied to us. This is how he now visits us, to apply this to us, to what? To recreate us, to make in us new hearts, that we would rightly and appropriately marvel at God. If you want to mar- like marvel at stars, marvel at trees, but marvel at the fact that God in Jesus can recreate a heart from being an enemy of God's to being a friend of God's. That is the greatest 
example, expression of power in the universe. What then is man? What is man that God is mindful of him? Well, if we are not his enemy, then we are his poetry. The tender work of his fingers on our hearts as he rewrites new scripts of dignity in us that we might marvel at his majesty. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this universe. That you speak to us generically through creation. And we we go, there's got to be something more. We can't just merely be matter. And then you come to us specifically. You come to us through your word. You come to us in the person of Jesus. Your Holy Spirit enlivens our heart to these truths and and recreates, reestablishes a new sense of worth and a new sense of dignity in us that we then would give glory and honor to you, that we would live in the design that you have for us, recreated in the image of Jesus, to make much of God and to enjoy creation. And our prayer here at Freeway is that we would that we would encounter this, that we would know this deeply in our hearts, that it would hold us in place when we're insecure and when we doubt and when we wonder if God is for us. We would see he's been for us in the most incredible ways with Jesus. Our prayer is that if you don't know that truth in your heart, if you still feel like you're alone in the world, that you would honestly and truthfully speak to God. Ask Him to visit you. To make Himself known in concrete ways that you just cannot deny. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.